Welcome to the Outer Realm with Michelle DeRoche and Amelia Passano. Airing live on the United Public Radio Network, 105.3 FM in New Orleans. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Thursday night segment of The Outer Realm. We're broadcasting live on the United Public Radio Network, UFO, Paranormal Radio Network, 105.3 and 107.7 FM from the beautiful city of New Orleans. We are fully sponsored by the amazing people over at Folgers Coffee who have been a part of our journey since the very beginning. And it's been quite a while now, a few years, in fact. So thank you, Folgers. We appreciate you so very much, and it just wouldn't be the same without you. Also, very grateful for our intro. So thank you, Justin Snicker, Dr. Snick, the sonic surgeon, for the contribution of your voice, your music, uh, for our outro as well. Of course, we don't get to that too often as we tend to run out of time. But uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it is the season for Justin Snicker, who is an award-winning composer of Halloween, horror, sci-fi, and dark wave electronic music, which can be found on all of your favorite streaming platforms. Check him out, honestly. He's got new stuff coming out. Like I said, tis the season. So also big thank you to artist Steve McGinnis, who is the man behind the banners and the logos here at the show. Check him out on Facebook and Instagram. Also specializes in the horror genre, but can do any commission piece you so choose, including books and comics. So check that out. Um, guys, we are the weekend of the symposium. So that is the Halifax Paranormal Symposium. I am just trying to get a picture up. Bear with me. Bear with me. Uh, here we go. So this is this coming weekend. This is on the 7th. And there's going to be all kinds of amazing speakers, some of which have been on the show several times. Uh, and let me get those up. Let me get those up because that is, that's a big one. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, boy. Hard going solo. <laughs> Miss you, Bubbles. Come back. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Here we go. Um, there we go. We've had Kim Moser on the show. We've had Daryl Walsh on the show twice um, in the last probably two or three months, along with uh, director Elliot Van Dusen. We've had Chris Stiles on many times um, throughout the last two or three years. Uh, a lot of really great, great speakers. Richard Gallagher, of course, Lauren Coleman. So guys, check them out. It's one day only, and it is this coming Saturday. So don't miss out. Also... <laughs> Also, um, oh, look at that. It's totally just totally left me. Sorry, guys. Hopefully, it'll come back to me at uh, before the end of the show. So tonight, we welcome for the very first time, and I mean, you guys are going to love this, um, Mark Dawidziak. I really hope I said that properly. Anyway, he's going to be discussing his book, A Mystery of Mysteries, The 
Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. Now, Mark has got like an exceptional background. I mean, exceptional. Um, just to knock off a few key points, he was trained for his Mark Twain performances by Hal Holbrook. Yes, he does Mark Twain performances. Great friend of Ray Bradbury's. Um, he was also good friends with Richard Matheson, who contributed to many of the stories on the Twilight Zone. And he just, this guy just has literally everything going on. I mean, I'm looking at his website. Holy crud. Okay, let me just pull up the website and go through a few things over here. Um, he's, he's an actor and a playwright. He has consulted on many, um, oh God, hold on, many different scripts and books. And um, he is the author or editor of 25 books, including three studies of landmark television series, The Columbo File, A Casebook, The Night Stalker, companion and everything you need to know and learn about the twilight zone he does all kinds of lectures um in fact right now i think he actually talks about the colombo file the shawshank redemption uh theodore roosevelt uh mark twain uh edgar Allan poe of course vampires and oh my god there's just so much um with mark that i don't think we're going to cover it all in one show and i have no doubt that we're going to uh bring him back on again so Without further ado, I'm just waiting for him to come on board and uh, fill you all in because honestly, there's just way too much to this guy and he is exceptional, just saying. So uh, hold on, let me get some pictures too and do a show and tell, which is, well, kind of a show and tell, you know, Edgar Allan Poe. And a lot of these photos that I'll be showing tonight, uh, you know, I think we've got four of them are courtesy of the poemuseum.com. So I really want to make mention of that um, because again, you know, the, the guy, these guys are really informative. Anybody who loves Edgar Allan Poe should go um, to their website and check them out and show them some support. There we go. All right. I think I'm good. So hopefully Amelia is going to be back next week. Right. I know. There we go. We miss her. Very strange not having her across from me week after week, but uh, hopefully that is going to change. So the chat rooms are all filling up. Um, for anybody who wants to get into the chat room, I recommend YouTube, like, you know, the Outer Realm YouTube, uh, just because of the fact that we've got, you know, more people coming in there. But there are seven chat rooms. There is no chat room on Roku TV, and we are on Roku TV. Um, go and check out you know, the Outer Realm on Facebook, check out the Outer Realm on YouTube, of course, United Public Radio Network, UFO Paranormal Radio Network. Um, there's all kinds, all kinds of uh, places that you guys can get in on it. But please remember, guys, seven chat rooms, just kind of picture a, you know, super highway of multiple lanes coming down to like one <laughs> so we're going to try to get to people and I know a lot of people just listen. We have a huge audio listenership. So we will try to make sure that everybody in radio land, because we are FM as well, um, you know, kind of get the gist of what's going on, even though you can't really see everything. So, uh, Oh, Hey, Z son is in the chat. Mark Eddie. Hello. Hello. Ed Odell. Always nice to see you, my friend. Very nice to see you. So we're going to get started, guys. Let's get the show on the road and bring in our special guest. Hello. Hi there. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing much better now. 
Were you a little concerned about the? I'm just a bit concerned, you know, keeping me on edge. <laughs> well, I, had, I had read it was not done on purpose, believe me. Oh, no. I, they kind of blew up on me, you know. Oh, that's all right. I'm just, all that matters is that you are here, and I am grateful. And I was uh, always intending to be here at this moment. Yeah. <laughs> A moment in time that was meant to be. Absolutely. That's good because there's a lot of people listening, so we're all excited. And honestly, you have. I was perusing your website and I thought, oh my gosh, you just have so much fun stuff. Like, what an incredible career and job that you have. Yeah, I I, I like to to say lucky. You know, I've been very fortunate uh, in in a writing career to sort of pursue a lot of um, uh, of the passions. And, uh, and, and when you do that, you tend to have fun. If you, if you can combine those two things, yeah. the, the result usually is a, as a, it's a pretty easy formula. The chemistry says you're going to have fun. So well, I, do. I, I mean, where do you start? I mean, what, I mean, I hate to say, I mean, you're very fortunate that you have a job. <laughs> if you could call it a job that you, that you really enjoy out of everything that, that you've done, is there anything specific that you enjoy the most? I mean, I, I think writing the books is the, is the, is the most fun thing you can have. And, and uh, that's always been the target is, you know, and that's my job now. My full-time job is writing books now. Wow. Um, so I mean, Very that, was, nice. that was kind of where I wanted to be. Right. Um, I kind of got forced into it because uh, in 2020, journalism and I separated company after 43 years as a TV and film critic. And uh, I was sort of forced into the lifestyle I wanted all my life. So, uh, right. you know, every time I've gotten blown up uh, in my life, I've always been blown up to a higher place. I've always, you know, it's always propelled me to, to a different thing. So, so fate knows better than you do. Right. And that's been true with every single book. You know, I, I always, this question comes up a lot is when I do interviews and somebody will say, well, what's your next book? Right. And um, I like the question because it always assumes there will be a next book. And that's always a nice assumption that's for somebody to make. <laughs> right. But also I always say, you know, well, I could tell you what I think my next book is going to be, but it, it'll be wrong because I've been wrong every single, my first book was published in 1982 Right. And when everybody said at that point, what's going to be your next book? I was fairly confident and would say with full confidence, this is going to be my next book. I was wrong then. And I've been wrong almost every single time. And fate this knows better than you do. I mean, you, you can think you're in charge. You're the captain of your ship. You're, you're, you're making the, the command decisions. But when you step back and look at the pattern of your life, mm -hmm. you kind of realize you were pushed into certain directions and that you were pushed to places where you were meant to be at a certain time in your life. I agree and, with you. And, that, and that's true with every single book I have written. So Wow. Yeah. Wow. Did you feel that you're just, you're just led, you're led to it and characters take over and that's it. It's like some, somewhat, but, but I think also it's, uh, you know, you writing is a tough racket, you know, you know, there's a pearl of wisdom for you. You know, writing is an extraordinarily uh, tough as my old buddy, uh, Harlan Ellison used to say, uh, becoming a writer is easy. Staying a writer is hard. Staying a writer <laughs> day in, day out, year after year. That's hard. That's hard. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. Uh, so I've always kind of viewed it as uh, my philosophy has been, you expect nine out of 10 things not to work out. You just have to be a short-term pessimist and understand you have to get used to rejection. Right, if, you know, right. Anybody in the arts, 
right. whether you're an actor or, or an mm -hmm. artist or, or whatever, mm -hmm. you have to be, you have to really toughen your hide to, to, to rejection. Mm -hmm. And so the, 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 the trick is to keep swinging. You're not swinging to, to hit nine times out of 10. You're hitting for the one out of 10 that's going to come through. Right. Wow. And that's enough because I, I have a lot, my, you know, back in the day when I had an actual filing cabinet before computers. Right. <laughs> right. I have, you know, a filing cabinet that's full of ideas of, for books that never got written and, and never got sold. Wow. And I think a lot of them are every bit as good as the ones that did. I think a lot of them are, you know, just as just good, but their timing wasn't right or the, mm -hmm. it wasn't what the publishers were looking for at that moment or that time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, you, 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 if you keep swinging, you're going to hit it. You're, you're mm -hmm. going to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to get do one, darn it. <laughs> you you <laughs> right. got to keep, I mean, you don't hit it. If you stop swinging, you don't, it doesn't, nothing gets happens. Nothing. Right. Happens. So, right. You know. So, I mean, but it's not something that you can go back to because I mean, now, you're more well known. The books all do well, so pretty. You get to that point, I think, where you can put out anything, and it's it anything. A bit of attention. It's easier well, to get the editor's attention. Yeah. Um, to, to I mean, to this point, I mean, editors still. There are books I wrote early in my career, right? That were published by mainstream publishers that would never get published today. Wow. That I'm good. Like uh, Mike, I'll, I mean, I'll give you a very good example. It's my Columbo yeah. book, you know, which was published in 1989 by Warner Books, mm -hmm. and the internet had its way with us in between when that book was published in 1989 and today. Yes. Now, you know, the the backbone of those books, those those sort of deep dive looks at TV shows, mm -hmm. were the episode guides. You know, which right. would have full cast lists and full credits and the cast everything. And with that, with the with the best of those books came analysis and interviews and TV history and all that. And you've got a whole lot came along for the ride. As soon as IMDb and Wikipedia came along, there was no need for those kind of, but you know, nobody needs to have a shelf full of books to look up a credit. It's two keystrokes right. on a computer and you're going right. to look at it. So mainstream publishers stopped doing those books. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I did some of those books when I did. Because there, there is no market for them anymore. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say no market, but you know, you, it's probably going to be a small independent publisher, and it's, it's going to be harder to make a, you know, you're 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 living with a book like that, right? And I find as well, um, you do have those of us who actually like to pick up a book and hold it and smell it and yeah. turn the pages and just, right. you know, and other people, everything's so digital, and I just, I don't enjoy it as much. I, I don't either, and I and, and and like I said, I still think you know the yeah. book is the ultimate thing. Yeah. The book is a very durable. Uh, it's a survivor. Yes, people have been been predicting that the book was going to die for centuries. Mm -hmm. Every time something new comes along, it's going to be the end of the book, and people are going to stop reading. Right, and it's never happened. No, it's never happened. No, you know, and it will. It will outlive technology because one day. You know, technology goes down, you get a blackout, you get supernova, you know, whatever. The people are going to come to this planet one day and go, look at what are all these things that are left? Books. Yeah. Books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Seriously. So, yeah, I, 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 you know, if there's a way to make a, a, a money by pushing nouns against verbs, I've probably done it, you know, because right. I had a long newspaper career. I right. did magazines. 
I've written liner notes and 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 such for DVDs and and Blu-rays. Mm-hmm. Back in the VHS days for VHS boxes, I've done comic book scripts, uh, mm-hmm. plays, right. novels, fiction, nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've pretty much you know done it, and I think that's kind of a model too. That is, it's hard to be a specialist anymore. Right. It's hard, and unless you're Stephen King, it's hard to just say, "Well, I write one thing." And even Stephen King doesn't write one kind of thing. Right. Um, but I think it's harder to to sort of you, you. I think you have to be more versatile, and I think you have to be mm-hmm. really kind of a a a a nineteenth century model. Right. Um, you know, sort of the idea of branding, mm-hmm. and you know, where you some you say to somebody, "Well, I'm a writer," and they say, "Oh, what kind of writer are you?" Oh, there are types. I have. <laughs> Oh, I didn't know that. Yay. Oh, you know, I mean, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, eventually we're probably the name Edgar Allan Poe is probably going to enter into this conversation at some point. Of course. And the, 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 if anybody knows anything about Edgar Allan Poe, if your first image of Edgar Allan Poe is probably the master of the macabre, it's probably the, our grandfather of goth. He is, you know, yes. our original purveyor of spooky stories. Yes. And the, the funny, if you had said that to Edgar Allan Poe, he wouldn't know what you were talking about. Right. You know, because Edgar Allan Poe, when, when Edgar Allan Poe died, he was only 40 years old in mm-hmm. 1849. They didn't get around to collecting, doing a really good collected edition of his work. Right. Until the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And by then, they had, had enough wherewithal to academically assemble all of his known writing. Mm-hmm. It was enough then to fill 17 volumes. Wow. Really? And that much of it is horror. There we go. Yep. Mr. Poe. That much of it is, is, is horror. Right. And yet it's, it's, it's what's defined him. It's what has, because and he was, and, and listen, I'm not taking anything away. He was good. He was, yeah. he was much better at it than anybody else who was doing it at the time. Right. But if you had said to him, oh, you're a horror writer. He wouldn't know what you were talking about. He said, oh, you, you mean goth? I write gothic stuff? Is that what you're trying right. to say? Right. Um, well, I guess I have some stories which are, you know, good spookers. But but look at everything else I write. I, I write criticism, journalism, essays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I write mystery stories. I write, you know, he would have he would have just thought, well, that's just one arrow in my quiver. Well, if you look at all of the sort of the Mount Rushmore of writers who took um, – the horror story into the modern age in the 1800s mm-hmm. that foursome would probably so it would start with mary shelley right yes you know, who has a tremendous impact on both horror and science fiction and right. predates poe you know yes. so it starts yes. with mary shelley yes and poe then robert louis stevenson with uh dr jekyll and mr hyde and yes. the body Snatcher, and then at the end of the century stoker with dracula now that's kind of your mount rushmore that's right. Uh, of the writers. And not one of them would have considered themselves a horror writer. Right. Even though they wrote all of the seminal horror stories. It, it, I know, but it was that brilliant country. stuff too. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's not until you get to the 20th century that we start branding people and, oh, you're a mystery writer, you're yes. a romance writer, you're a horror writer, you're a Western writer, you're this, you're that. Yes. And, you know, back then they didn't think they had to choose. They just said, you know, well, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson would have said, well, you know what? Yes, today I'm writing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but tomorrow I'm writing Treasure Island. And the next day I'm writing A Child's Garden of Verses. And the next right. day I'm writing Essays. Yes. He would have just been moving from one thing to another. Yes. And, you know, there was something in him that responded to the horror story as there was to Poe. Mm-hmm. But 
they didn't look at it as defining them in any way. Right. You know? And I think that model is, is going to be much more of a now modern mo uh, model because I think it's going to be difficult for somebody to say, I only write one kind of thing. Well, good luck making a living then because that's true. You have to be yeah. willing to roll up your sleeves and try a lot of things. Mm hmm. You know, if you if you want to write horror, you're probably going to want to write a whole lot of other different things to support that habit. Well, I mean, you look at Anne Rice, for example, you know, like known for all of her vampire stories, but she wrote erotica before well, that. She certainly did. Right. <laughs> right. So she certainly did. You know, and, and, yeah. and there was a reason. I mean, and, and I actually interviewed Anne Rice a couple of times. Yeah. And Very I, nice. I, I and I got her thoughts on Edgar Allan Poe uh, are in the, the Poe biography. Mm -hmm. And uh, she she was influenced by Poe greatly, which you can tell with her language. You, I think more than anything else, you can tell with her language and her specificity of uh, descriptive writing. It's right. very Poe-like. And one reason was because her father, who didn't really have a lot of money, her father had one of the early, before anybody had tape recorders, her father bought one of like the early model tape recorders. And this is like, we're talking about the 1950s. Right. And this, you know, the people who had them could record, oh yeah, radio shows. So you could listen to it later, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, her father recorded his own version of Poe stories for her. Oh. A little girl. Wow. She was wow. learning Poe at her father's knee. And she was also learning Poe, you know, almost being imprinted on her DNA as a child. Yes. You know? So there yes. was only something you know, in in Rice, I think that responded to the uh, well, childhood the memory comfort yeah. programming. You know, <laughs> you know on, on some level, everybody yeah. who who sort of writes horror, no matter how much they write it, whether they write it full time or whether they just write it occasionally, mm -hmm. the one thing they all have in common is that they respond to the 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 creak of the uneasy coffin lid. Right. Or, the, or, or the, the the dungeon door. There's something yes. in you that responds to that. Yes. And if you read it and you consume it and you're doing that, you know, it's something we share. You right. Know? There's something in you that and and you you don't resist the call. If right. you hear the call of the creaking dungeon door, you go towards it. That's and true. you know, so that and it doesn't mean it's the only thing you respond to. Uh, but it is, it's there in you and it cannot be denied and it should not be denied. No, I, I agree. It's one thing, there's always something that is embedded within us and um, I'd be all over the creaking. I'm funny this like is where, that. You know, I grew, I, I, I became a horror fan at the age of seven, you know, um, yeah. 1962. Right. Um, uh, 1963, I think. Um, and it was a movie called Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein that did it. Oh, I've seen it. I love it. Yeah. And but I was there for the Abbott and Costello half. I was there for the comedy half because that's yeah. up to that age. Yes. That's what I knew. And comedy was sort of king for me. Yes. I didn't know what a Frankenstein was at seven. Right. And by that time, that movie was over. Mm hmm. Mostly because of Lugosi's performance as Dracula in that movie, which he's yeah. really—he steals the movie. He's—he's he's wonderful. Yes. And by the time that movie was over, I had been transformed into a seven-year-old horror fan. Right. And then I started to consume. Now you know, in the '60s, we, that's what we were. We 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 we. There's a, a bunch of us who sort of grew up in the the '60s, mm -hmm. and almost had this kind of shared childhood. 
Mm-hmm. The reason it's a shared childhood is because there wasn't that much horror. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not like today where there's horror for everybody coming from any angle. You can choose. It's, it's, it's yes. you know, what do you want? You, How do you, thought, want? you were lucky to have a Friday night. It would start at midnight and you would have like two or three movies that would go till four or five in the morning. And they were the old black and whites. Yeah. I mean, you, you and you had to scan the, your TV listings every week to yeah. see is there, is there an old universal horror film on? Is there a, a mm-hmm. Val Luton movie on this week? Is yes. There, you know, is it the evasion of the body snatch or something. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. I loved it. I still <laughs> love the old black and whites. And we all got, you know, uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine and Castle of Frankenstein. And we all got our Aurora monster models. And we built our all oh, 13 of my Vincent Aurora monster Price. models are right yeah. here on my, on, my, on my shelves. Yeah. Today, they call that child that you, they say you were a monster kid. That's the, mm. that's the phrase for it now. And we didn't have that phrase in the 1960s. We we're just horror fans. You know, right. But everything gets labeled in this day and age, I find. There's a label Americans for everything. Americans love labels. Yes. We love it. <laughs> yes, yes. You're not wrong. <laughs> we are all like scientists who want to stick pins and in insects and label them and put little numbers that's on them. That's true. Labels and buzzwords. And we love, we love our, you know, that's one thing that the 20th century did. We love our specialists. Yes. We started to uh, penalize versatility and celebrate. Mm-hmm our specialists yes so like you know alfred hitchcock did thrillers yes so you know yes. he was a, but robert wise as a director you know people don't think of robert wise as the same class as hitchcock and if you put robert all the robert wise's credits together mm-hmm. he's taller than almost anybody right he did great horror movies like the body snatcher and yeah. and, and and uh and the haunting Yes, he did great science fiction like The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, I know it's excellent. Did, he did boxing movies, he did film noir, he did musicals like West Side Story and The Sound of Music. Yeah, and it's almost like people became suspicious of versatility. Like, mm-hmm. well, I mean, you have to bounce around like that. Is he any why good? do you think that is? It, 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 it uh, one of the things was because there were critical schools that came, uh, in the, in the, the mid uh, 20th century and on into the 60s. Mm-hmm. It sort of celebrated the auteur theory and the yeah. idea of, you know, people who specialized, like artists specialized, mm-hmm. like, you know, this school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so so versatility in writing and, and directing and sometimes even in acting mm-hmm. was not looked on as a, it was almost looked on with suspicion, which is odd, which is right. very, yeah. very odd, you know. Yes. And, uh, you know, and, and, and writers are built differently. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some writers who are natural specialists and are happy being specialists and, and God bless them. That's what they should do. There's, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing wrong with that. As they used to say on Seinfeld, there's, there's just nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, other writers are, are, are feel the need to try different things. And mm-hmm. you, know, you said, you know, we, you opened by saying, I looked at the things you've written. Well, if you've looked at the things you've written, one of the conclusions you must have come to is that this is one of the most deeply schizophrenic resumes I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> this guy bounces around like nobody's business. That's true, but it's great. It's great. Being I versatile. It yeah, it is. I think it is. It is because you could just immerse yourself in different things. Like I have interest in so much of everything that that is on your website i go back to mark twain for just a minute i remember being in jamestown where he stayed he spent a year at a home there that i was brought to visit of a friend of his and it was this now it's this 
crazy haunted house, but I love it because you know it, the 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 history behind it, the fact that he came up to Jamestown and it's where he wrote Mark Twain. So he had, you know, Huck, he, Huck 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 he spent Huck his Huck summers in, and he spent all his summers in Elmira, which is close to Jamestown. See, there, there you go. He was spent his summers at Quarry Farm, which was his uh, sister-in-law's farm. Yeah, and he did the majority of his writing uh in, in upstate new york so yeah there, there's a i there's love a it tie between and he used to pack up his family and he lived in hartford at the time and he would pack up his family every summer and spend the entire summer in upstate new york mm -hmm. and rod serling did the exact same thing right they really? separated by 90 years they were born 90 years apart mm -hmm. and rod serling every summer would pack up his family and he would head to ithaca new york which if you're looking at like jamestown ithaca yeah. elmira that is yeah. really close. I mean, like, it's like a really triangle like of just, yeah, yeah. creativity. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I love it. I love it. So getting on to, you know, the man of, of, of the evening, which of course is Edgar Allan Poe and this biography that you wrote right here. Mm -hmm. I had to shrink it because unfortunately, um, you know, the computer likes to do weird things and I couldn't get the whole book in. So <laughs> here we are. Oh, what? What prompted you to want to write um, a, the well, the biography for Edgar Allan Poe? Because it is mysterious. Like as soon as you mentioned when we died, we already had Chris uh, Phoenix in chat room going, "What? I just learned something new. What do you mean he died this young?" <laughs> there you go. Hang in there, Chris. It's going to be one heck of a night. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I'll start with the the, the notion that um, I, I I I have a very healthy ego. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with 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 my you know, with my with my sense of artistic ego. Right. But I I do not have the uh, the hubris, let's say. Okay. To have positioned myself as being the next person to write a biography of Edgar Allan Poe. I, right. I, I I don't have that in in my. And if I'm associated with any 19th century American author, it's clearly Mark Twain. You know, right. <laughs> I, not only are five of my books about Mark Twain, but I've been playing Mark Twain on stage for 45 years. I love it. So, you know, and it when I started, I was 22 years old and it took me uh, two hours to look like this. Wow. So, I mean, you know, the, the makeup process got shorter every year. Yes. So, you know, I was, you know, I, I've been I've, I've given papers at, at Poke, uh, Twain conferences uh, since mm -hmm. the, uh, for, for 25 years. Wow. I've published a lot on, you know, uh, different uh, anthologies about Twain mm -hmm. and five of the books are, are, are Twain centric. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I, I sort of built up my credentials in, right. in studying Twain. Yes. And uh, but I had done a book uh, for St. Martin's called uh, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in the Twilight Zone. And it was sort of my lighthearted tribute. One of my favorite movies. Yeah. Rod Serling series. Yeah. Zone. Yeah. And the book had done well enough for uh, us to talk about the next book. Because when you sign a contract with a major publisher, yeah. there is what's called an option clause. And the option clause means that you have to offer your next book to, the, to that publisher. Right. They don't have to publish it. Right. But you have to at least offer it to them. The idea being if they had a hand in your success with one book, you at least owe them the chance to do your next one. And right. that's a sort of a fair clause to be right. in there. And the, the Twilight Zone book had done well enough for us to have that discussion. So in um, the fall of 2019, 
uh, I was having a discussion with an editor at St. Martin's about what the next book would be for them. And, um, and again, it was, once again, as I say, you're not in charge. You're, you're, this is one again, you know, where fate's going to step in. Right. I, I, he said, well, what are you thinking about? So I hit him with what I thought was my 100% surefire can't miss idea. And it missed badly. <laughs> he was not the least bit interested in my can't miss idea. Wow. And I, so I said, so he countered, he sort of said, okay, you know, what about this? And I didn't like his idea, what he thought I should be doing. So right. I countered with my next best idea. He didn't like that. And we kind of went back and forth and we were just getting to the point where we were going to table the conversation for another day. We were not, weren't getting anywhere. We were just spinning our wheels and it, it, it was a very pleasant conversation. This was not an unpleasant. This was just process. We were mm -hmm. talking about. And um, I, we were just about to get off the phone. And he said, what about Edgar Allan Poe? Hmm. And I said, what about him? <laughs> and he said, well, I don't. Th there hasn't been a major biography of Poe in quite a while. And I said, I don't think that's right. And then I looked back and I said, actually, the, the, the last major biographies of Poe were in the, 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 the 90s. So there has, it has been a while. It didn't seem like it had been that long ago. Mm. And I, then I said, well, um, I've, Poe is a, a writer I've carried through my entire life. Not long after I became a horror fan at the age of seven, I discovered there was this writer named Poe who had a hand in um, creating the modern horror story. And uh, I became intrigued. Now, most people first get Edgar Allan Poe in the, in the ninth grade or the, the seventh, seventh grade. Most uh, people, Poe enters into the curriculum with the telltale heart yes. around the seventh grade. So I discovered Poe actually a little bit before that, because if, if there used to be a, a thing, I think there might still be called scholastic books. Yes. And they would yes. bring the catalog around to your classroom. That's right. Every so often. And then you yeah. could order um, books from the catalog. Well, That's right. After I, one of the books that were in the catalog was, 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 was this book. The, it's a, Edgar Allan Poe. Ten, <laughs> Ten Great Mysteries by Edgar Allan Poe. This is the very book. I ordered this from scholastic books. Wow. And um, this was kind of the start. This was kind of the start of what turned into an immense Poe library. Mm -hmm. I've carried Poe through my entire life. I, in my 20s, set out to read everything that he'd written. Uh, in my 30s, I set out to read everything that had been written about him, all of the biographies and scholarly wow. works. In my 40s, my wife and I, we have a theater company, a touring theater company, and we started performing uh, uh, poems and stories by Poe. So Poe is a writer I've 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 carried through my entire life. But it, despite that, I would have never said I'm the candidate to write the next biography of him. Right. So I said to this editor, "Why did you say Edgar Allan Poe?" Mm. And he said, "Well, it seems to me he checks a lot of your boxes." Now, again, sometimes it takes somebody else to point out the obvious. Yeah, from the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. And I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Well." Poe was a major uh, 19th century American author. You've written about a major 19th century author with Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. Poe was a critic most of his professional life. You were a critic most of your professional life. Mm -hmm. Poe was the father of the modern mystery story. You've written a book about a classic mystery character with your Colombo book. 
Mm -hmm. Poe was the father of the modern horror story. You've written about horror topics like uh, Dracula and the Night Stalker. Yeah. How does this not check all your boxes? Yeah. The light goes off. You're right. (laughs) I guess that's right. But but then it became sort of like, well, what kind of biography were you thinking of? And this was where it almost was over before it started. Because it became very quickly obvious that the kind of biography he wanted was the kind of book that um, seems to get published every two years. It seems Mm -hmm. to arrive on the noon stage with regularity. And Mm -hmm. it's the book that purports to definitively solve the identity of Jack the Ripper. We're finally (laughs) going to do this. Now, we must be up to about 15 or 16 definitive cases that have solved the Jack the Ripper murders. Right. And you know, everybody and there'll be a new one. And you know, just 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 hold you just hold on and just wait where you are. Sooner in a in a in a, in a year or so there'll be another one mm-hmm. that'll say it has definitively solved the Jack the Ripper murders. Mm-hmm. And I said he wanted that kind of book about how Edgar Allan Poe died. Something that would definitively solve the mystery Ooh. of Poe's death. Right. And I said, uh, let me tell you why that book can't be written. A, there was no autopsy. And even if there had been an autopsy, this was 1849. The autopsy did not enter the modern era until the Civil War. The Civil War was a defining moment Mm -hmm. in the development of autopsies because we got very good at cutting up bodies during the Civil War. Right. So even if there had been an autopsy on Poe, they wouldn't have known how to do it, and it would probably have been conducted with the equivalent of butcher's knives. So it would be worthless to us today. Right. There wasn't one anyway. Right. There's no death certificate. Wow. There is no surviving soft tissue that can be subjected to modern forensics. Mm-hmm. There uh, are no reliable witnesses to Poe's death. All of the primary witnesses to Poe's death contradict each other and pretty much contradict themselves. They leave behind accounts which contradict their previous accounts. So all of the witnesses are untrustworthy, Mm. to put it mildly, including the attending physician, John Moran, who left behind three accounts of Poe's death, all of them wildly different in details and tone. Moran goes so far as to change the time of death and to change Poe's last words. Were the last words or like how, what, so what is the, okay, so let's back up then. So this is, I guess, the mystery, the, I mean, the biggest mystery is how he, he died, obviously. So what is the speculation and what? Let me put it this way. There are about 25 theories as to how Poe and this okay. is why I told this editor, you know, if yeah. this is the type of book you want, yeah. you'd better go find yourself another lunatic because this one's driving away. Right. <laughs> I, said, and I said, but I'll tell you the book I will write for you. I'll write a book that examines Poe's life through the filter of the mystery of his death, which is one of the most enduring things about Poe. And it's one of the reasons the subtitle is reversed. If you look at the subtitle, it's a mystery of mysteries. The death and life of Edgar Allan. That's right. Now, one reason is because a lot of discussion of Poe starts with the mystery of his death. 
Mm-hmm. And it, with good reason, it seems to be the starting point. Now, with most biographies, start at the logical point where you usually start, which is when somebody is born. But with Poe, it always seems we start with his death at the age of 40 in 1849. Mm. And this enduring mystery, well, it it encompasses one of the great literary stage exits of all time. Poe mm. dies in a manner that reflects his two greatest literary achievements. Poe dies under circumstances which are A, horrific, because he dies, he's, he's lingering, he's in great pain. Mm. He lingers for many days at a hospital in Baltimore. He is sometimes out of his head. He is he's sometimes raving. So these are this is a condition which would not be out of place in one of Poe's own horror stories. And then Poe dies and he leaves us, the father of the, of the modern detective story, leaves us with a mystery. In fact, he leaves us with a double-barreled mystery, which is not just how he died, but before Poe is discovered on the streets of Baltimore on October 3rd, he goes missing for six days. He gets on a steamer in Richmond, heading for Baltimore. By the, the moment his foot is on the deck of that steamer, a curtain comes down on Poe's life. And he goes missing for six days. And we have no idea where he was during those six days. A lot of theories about this, too. But not one witness came forward after Poe's death to say so much as I passed him on the street during those six days. I saw, had a conversation with him at the railing of the steamer on our way to Baltimore. Nothing. So it's like it just didn't exist. It's an amazing stage exit. It's right. amazing that somebody dies. I mean, there are three great stage exits in literary history. The first is Moliere, because Moliere was a playwright and an actor. Mm-hmm. And they, he was dying of consumption. You know, what, what we know today is tuberculosis, what they called consumption back then. Yes. He's dying of consumption and they are premiering his, his last play and he's in it. So he's dying and he's trying to get through the performance. He collapses on stage. They drag him into the wings and they revive him he goes back on stage and he finishes the production. Oh my gosh. And he goes home and he dies. Now that's pretty good. That's, that's amazing. A pretty <laughs> good stage exit, folks. You know? Wow. Wow. And, then, and there's Twain. Because yeah. Mark Twain is born in November of 1835 with Halley's mm-hmm. Comet visible in the night sky. Wow. Halley's Comet returns in 1910. And the year before, Twain correctly predicts that he will die when the comet comes back. He tells an audience that the Almighty has said, no doubt, that here are these two indefinable freaks, the comet and me. Wow. We came in together. We must go out together. And he... Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. 
Mysterious Japan is produced, written and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Havey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Hold it off. He dies in April of 1910 with Halley's Comet in the sky. So he comes in with the comet and he goes out with the comet. And folks, that's a little item which would not be out of place in Greek myth. A hero right. coming in with a comet and going out with a comet. That's right. Well, that's pretty good. But in some that's way, amazing. Poe beats them all because Poe actually dies under circumstances that reflect his literary achievements. And that, I mean, as, as one Poe scholar said to me, it's almost as if a, a, a press agent approached him at some point and said, you know, Eddie, the best thing for you is to die at 40 under circumstances which are right out of your own writing. You know, it can't be better than that. So in some ways, Poe beats them all. And so this this kind of ongoing mystery of his death and the fact that in some ways it's an unsolvable mystery. Because I told him, if I come up with a theory as to how Poe died, and I believe it is convincing, logical, compelling. I will present it. But mm -hmm. I am not going to go so far as to say that I can prove it. Right. Now, did I come up with that kind of a theory? Yes. Um, can I prove it? Do I insist on it? No. Mm -hmm. No. Right. I, 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 I think that would be irresponsible. Right. And I'm not even sure it's a mystery I want to see solved. Right. Um because we would lose something if we solve the mystery of Poe's death. We would lose a very romantic aspect of what we know of Edgar Allan Poe if right. all of a sudden this was solved. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's an old saying that some mysteries are not meant to be solved. Right. Um, I'm, I'm not so sure that this isn't one of them. Wow. That's interesting. But, I mean, it, it's almost like the, you know, the, the legends all the legends that, that we read about and part of the allure of that. Cause I mean, realistically Poe is a literary, literary legend. He is. So, and as a matter of fact, most of his, um, his reputation is built on misinformation. Right. Um, right. The, 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 one, another reason I wanted to write the book was I wanted to reclaim Poe as a writer and mm -hmm. as a person, I wanted to, you know, we have built of Poe a sort of funhouse mirror reflection of who he really was. Mm -hmm. It's it is it is it is a picture that's etched in distortion, and it's based on myth and misinformation. Mm -hmm. And the real Poe was probably nothing like you think he was. I feel he sort of had. A bit of a sad life, really. It was a very sad life, yes, um, because he was battling poverty the whole time, and also because he was a genius and he was about the only one who knew it, right. which is going to condemn you to a fairly lonely uh, life in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. But Poe had a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. And I mean, one of the reasons I set out to write the book was the stereotype of who Poe was 
did not match up with the person who must have written those stories. Mm-hmm. Now, this all happens. This all starts. You see, one of the few things we know for certain about Poe's death is that he stopped drawing breath on Sunday, April, uh, October 7th, 1849. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a fact. And then we know that he was buried the next day in a small Presbyterian cemetery in Baltimore mm-hmm. on a very rainy, cold, dreary day at a service attended by very few people. Hmm. And then we know that the next day, October 9th, he was buried again because the next day an obituary appears in a New York newspaper written by somebody who Poe thought was a friend but was actually somebody who had been harboring resentments against him and grudges for years. And he waited until Poe died. And before the body was even cold, he launched his attack. And the man's name, get ready to hiss, because this is one of the great villains of Poe's life. And he's got a name that sounds like he should be a villain. His name was Rufus Griswold. Nah, doesn't yes. that sound like it's right out of a Victorian yes. drama? You know? Yes. <laughs> yes. Can you hear me hissing? <laughs> I hiss very well. <laughs> well, Rufus Griswold writes an obituary that begins, I'm paraphrasing, but he writes, uh, the day before yesterday, Edgar Allan Poe died in Baltimore. Some will be surprised. Few will be grieved. And then it went downhill from there. And he accused Poe of every immoral act and and just painted him as a liar and a cheat and a terrible person and a drunkard. And the damage that Griswold did has not been undone today. It exists yet today. Wow. And he was not done. He spent uh, many years flailing obsessively at the corpse of Edgar Allan Poe. He writes more pieces and he adds more accusations and charges to Poe mm-hmm. against Poe. He does everything <laughs> he can to destroy Poe's reputation. And why? What? Well, he was bearing grudges against Poe. Poe thought so much of Griswold, he named Griswold his literary executor. He put his literary reputation oh, into the hands of somebody who was his bitterest enemy and he didn't know it. Oh my gosh. So oh. so Poe's reputation just in it. Now, is there a counterattack? Yes, there is. Some of the counterattack comes from Poe's friends. And yes, Poe had a lot of friends. He was not mm. friendless. But uh, it then comes from the French, led by Baudelaire, mm. you know, who idolized Poe. And Baudelaire goes after Griswold, hammer and tong. Uh, he calls Griswold a pedagogic vampire. Right. He, uh, he famously asked the question, because of Griswold's treatment of the deceased Poe, are there not ordinances in the United States that prevent dogs from running loose in your cemeteries? So he goes after, he compares Griswold with a dog. He wow. really goes after him. But the French basically replace one stereotype, the immoral drunkard, with another one, which was it, it, that, that Poe was touched with insanity. And these stories somehow came from uh, a a mind which was a little unhinged. Well, that was a very romantic notion of the French. They liked the idea. And all of Poe's characters and stories are reflections of who he was. 
Poe is the narrator in the telltale heart. Poe is the guy talking to the raven. Poe is Montresor in the cask of Amontillado, leading Fortunato to his death. They're mm -hmm. all Poe. These are all, well, that's nonsense. These stories were not great because Poe was insane. They were great because he was a great writer in total control of his craft. He was a great artist. Mm -hmm. And if you chalk it up to insanity, you're undercutting his genius as his true genius as a writer. Mm -hmm. But from this, a stereotype emerges. And, you know, it's, it's nice in some ways. I mean, fame has been a, a double-edged sword for Mr. Poe. Mm. On the one hand, those small little group of stories, the horror and mystery stories, have kept him alive. But they've also defined him. That mm. we, all, we, we basically look at Poe and we think horror and mystery. Mm. And if you think of, well, you know, Poe and you say, well, well, Edgar Allan Poe, everybody's got an image already. Yes. Well, that's pretty good, actually. Can you say, I mean, if I say, you know, Herman Melville, can, does anybody have an image of Herman Melville? What he looked like? What he's, yeah. you know, could you even pick Herman Melville out of a police lineup? <laughs> you know, but Poe, we put mm. Poe on T-shirts. We make action figures of him. We put him on T-tins and we put him on plushies. You can go into bands. He's, he's a household name. Yes. <laughs> you know. go to a Barnes and Noble store and there's shelves and shelves of Poe. Yes. You know, where are the shelves for Emerson? Where, where are the shelves right. for Hawthorne? You know, right. But we market Poe. <laughs> right. And But we market an image of Poe, which is, again, uh, it's, it's, it's a stereotype. And the stereotype is probably this. See if this sounds familiar. You know, mm -hmm. Edgar Allan Poe, a sickly guy with a sallow complexion, deep sunken eyes, a haunted look, mm. probably sitting up in an attic somewhere, surrounded by cobwebs, mm -hmm. a raven perched on his shoulder. And a black cat, red-eyed, prowling through the dust and the cobwebs while Poe spins out his tales of horror and terror in fever dreams fueled by alcohol and possibly drugs. Mm -hmm. And that probably sounds familiar because that's probably an image most people have of Poe. Yeah. Well, here's the secret. None of it's true. Not a bit of that is true. Mm -hmm. Poe was nothing like that. He was athletic. Hmm. He was healthy for most of his life. It's not till the last couple of years that he really starts to look sickly. He doesn't even wear a mustache for the last two years of his life. Mm -hmm. So if you had passed Poe on the streets of Philadelphia in 1843, you would have seen a man moving at a brisk pace with a military gait. He'd been in the military. He was a good soldier. He was promoted as high as you could be as a, as a soldier to a sergeant. And he never lost that kind of military gait. He walked everywhere. He could win any jumping or leaping contest mm -hmm. because he was so athletic. He was a good boxer. He was funny. He was witty. He wrote as much humor as he did horror. We if, just won't read it. Yeah. This is not a vision of Poe that we're, we're no, accustomed not. to seeing, young Poe. Yeah. And this, and remember, he only lives to be 40, and he only... We all, all of our images of Poe, all of the established images of Poe come from about seven or eight photographs, what were called daguerreotypes, mm -hmm. and a few oil paintings, a few, a few portraits. That's it. We, we've got like, you know, maybe 10 or 11 images of Poe from his mm -hmm. entire life. 
And right. most of them are from the last two years of his life. And they're all from the last six years of his life. Right. So we don't yeah. even know what he looked like for the majority of his life. This is the one you're showing is from 1847. Wow. This is the beginning of the end. He still looks pretty healthy here. And this is the mm -hmm. only picture that has even the hint of a smile. He almost has this kind of little yeah. suggestion of a smile. This is sometimes called the David Niven picture because he looks a little dapper. and Right. But um, this photograph, you look, all of the photographs that follow this, you can see Pope, this is a sick man. He's getting sicker and sicker as the years go on. Right. So all of our pictures, that the images, most of the images that we know of Poe come from those last two years when he was a very sick man. Right. And uh, and, and most of them are the daguerreotypes. And daguerreotypes, nobody smiled in daguerreotypes. That's true. You, you see, this is a daguerreotype, what you're showing now. Mm -hmm. And this was taken a bit after the previous. Look how the difference in, in it. Yes. This is some guy, something's going wrong with Edgar Allan Poe. His health right. is, is going off the tracks. Right. He's starting to look a little puffy. He's starting right. to, you know, uh, so he is, but this is the image of Poe we have. Yes. But it's based on, and the other thing about daguerreotypes is they were done in studios. Mm -hmm. We sat in chairs in a studio in very uncomfortable chairs and the chairs had braces and that was to keep you still because the lens had to stay open for a long time. There was even a brace that held your neck in place. Right. And you were told not to smile. Everybody looks constipated in daguerreotypes, the statesmen, presidents, everybody. <laughs> yeah. And one of the reasons is because we were told don't smile because it's hard to hold a smile for any length of time. Right. So everybody was told to look serious. So Poe looks serious in the pictures and people think, oh, that's who he was. Right. But if we had one picture of Poe laughing, if Poe had lived into the era of the what was called the Kodak, the candid photograph, where anybody could take pictures of their neighbors and such. And we had pictures of Poe playing leaping contests in his front yard and splitting his pants and laughing himself silly in the process. How would that change our image of Edgar Allan Poe? Right. So Poe is just not who we think he is. And we we built this kind of stereotype. And then the 20th century, the pop culture takes over. And we take all of that, confusing him with his unreliable narrators, the French wanting him to be, you know, a little bit crazy, mm. damage done by Griswold. And we mold this kind of sickly master of the macabre image that we, this, this grotesque caricature that we make of Poe. Mm. And the real Poe was not, was nothing like that. And the real writer was nothing like that. He was a very serious writer. Um, right. Somebody, you know, uh, if you know something about Poe, some people will say, well, you know, he, he was an alcoholic. He had a problem with the bottle. Yeah. Well, yeah, he did. Alcohol was a problem, but it was, probably wasn't the problem you think it was. Mm -hmm. Is that um, the record's fairly clear. From the moment that Poe kind of takes his first real drink as an adult, as a student at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, all the way to the end of his life, all the witnesses to his drinking say the same thing. It took very little alcohol to get Poe roaring drunk. Mm -hmm. Poe was never one to uh, savor a drink. He would throw it back in a gulp. Right. And then it would be like he'd been drinking for hours. It had an immediate and terrible effect on him. Right. right. And then it took a long time for him to get over it. It wasn't just a simple morning hangover for Mr. Poe. It took days to get over the drinking, which means alcohol had a devastating effect on his system. And it also means he probably was allergic to alcohol. Mm. Now, 
he wasn't drinking all the time. There are these long documented periods of sobriety where 12, 14 months, he wasn't touching it. He, mm-hmm. wasn't, he wasn't going anywhere near it. And during those times, he's a very careful exacting writer. He's revising his stuff constantly. He's writing all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Not just horror. Poe's problem is he, he takes a, the exact wrong moment to take a drink. Right. Or to pick a fight. Yeah. Always, always his own worst enemy throughout his life. Mm-hmm. To the point where sometimes you want to reach into the pages of a biography and slap him and say, Wait, really? You think <laughs> this was the moment to pick a fight? Really? <laughs> this guy's trying to help you. Right. Um, okay, same thing. So yeah. the, the episodes of drinking got blown all out of proportion. And it, people sort of thought he was drinking all the time. Well, listen, you can all, you cannot live to be just 40 and leave behind enough writing to fill 17 volumes, especially to the high level of writing that Poe did yeah, and be drinking all the time. Right. Impossible. So right. were there these long moments of, yeah, most of his life, he, he's not drinking, mm-hmm. but alcohol is a continuing problem throughout his life. Right. Right. So, so yes, I mean, alcohol is always there and it's always kind of a contributing factor. Mm-hmm. You know, if some if, if, Say like, well, do you think that's what killed him? I'd say, no, I don't think alcohol killed him, but I think alcohol was an accomplice. I think alcohol undermined his health. I think it was a contributing factor. I think it had such a devastating effect on his system. It weakened his system, and it certainly set him up for, you know, other causes. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, if it's not our primary suspect. It's not our, our, our primary person of interest among all the possible causes, mm-hmm. but it's in the room as an accomplice, you know, right. so... So I do think I, I don't dismiss alcohol mm-hmm. as a problem in Poe's life, but I do try to put it into some kind of proper proportion uh, to Poe. So right. that's what I say. You know, the part of the, the, the whole uh, aim of the book was to sort of rescue, shatter the myth, shatter the caricature and replace it with the uh, the image of the real writer, the real person who wrote that. that you know that in his lifetime. Edgar Allan Poe was not best known as the author of stories of horror and mystery? I, I It would be hard to imagine him well known for anything else. No. And he wasn't best known as a poet. <coughs> he was best known in his lifetime as a critic, as a literary critic, as America's leading literary critic. Really? He wrote a vast amount of literary criticism for various magazines. And he was so feared and he was so tough as a critic. His nickname was the Tomahawk Man. And never knew of, that. He had a lot of enemies. Wow. But in his lifetime, Poe was known first as a critic, second as a poet, third as the author of stories of horror and mystery. Our century has reversed that order. We know him first as the author of horror and mystery, secondarily mm. as a poet, and third, if you know it at all, as a critic. And that's only three of the type of the major accomplishments of Poe's life. He so there would kid. there would be a lot of people out there who would want to see him dead. I don't know if dead, but uh, you know he was very. He made a lot Ill, of ill will to a bad critic who can do damage to a career. He he was dismissed mostly by the the elite because Poe understood he was a very good critic, but we know it today. Today, we realize just how good a critic he was because the people he championed 
were really good. He championed people like Hawthorne and Washington Irving and people who really deserve to be remembered. And the people he went after deserve to be forgotten and dismissed. Right. And, you know, one of the reasons I re also reversed the death and life of Edgar Allan, <clears throat> one of the reasons I reversed it was because in his lifetime, Poe got very little money. Mm -hmm. You know, he battled poverty. He'd write, there were no copyright laws. So he would write something like The Raven. He'd get paid 45, 50 bucks for it. And, and then it would be reprinted in every newspaper and magazine up and down the coast. And he would not get another dime for it. Mm. So, you know, Poe understood he was a genius and he understood that he was ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I once, uh, I said to one Poe scholar while I was writing the book, you almost wish you could go back and tell him and say, yes. you're going to be the one they remember. Mm -hmm. They're not going to remember. They're not going to put, they're not going to put Emerson on t-shirts. Mm, they're not going to make action figures of Thoreau or Longfellow. Right. You're the one they're going to remember. You're going to become the best read American writer, not just in your country, mm -hmm. but around the world. And it's not going to even be close. And when I said that, the post scholar looked at me and said, I think he knew. I think he knew. And, and, I, I, and I said, you know what? I think you're right. I think he did know. I think he knew time was on his side. And that's and, one of the things that is, you know, you go back to the idea that he gets buried you know, in Baltimore, he gets buried by Griswold. And then, you know, in 1875, he got buried again because they dug him up. They dug Why? Up Why? Why did they dig but him up? Was where they put him originally in a small cemetery in, in, in Baltimore. They wanted to put up a big monument. By 1875, there was kind of starting to get this idea in Baltimore that maybe this Poe guy was worth paying some attention to. Mm -hmm. He wanted to put up a nice monument to, to Poe. But there wasn't room for that monument in the little part of the cemetery where he was. Right. In a different part. So they had to, they had to dig him up. So they dug him up and they, they buried him again, you know. And then Poe gets buried again in the in the 20th century under sort of all of the marketing and grotesque. Edgar Allan Poe, our master of the Macaulay. Oh, my and all God. The Poor man. Had his way with him. But here's the, here's, the, here's the wonderful thing. If you know anything about Edgar Allan Poe stories. Here's the one catch-all rule. Nothing ever stays buried in an Edgar Allan Poe short story. <laughs> I, I completely am with you on that. And Poe is not going to stay buried either. No. He is going to emerge triumphant from the grave and have the best afterlife of any American writer. He is going to outlast, outshine, outperform all of those writers who are out supposed to outlast him. Right. Poe is going to have the last laugh when it's right. all over. And that's the main reason I reversed the subtitle and it's the death and life of Edgar Allan Poe because he's going to overcome the death. He's right. going to overcome, however he died, he's right. going to overcome it and he's the most alive American writer uh, today. Right, right, despite everything. Despite everything. And despite and, all the efforts. And yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, you think about it. Everybody, you know, one of the things that's been Poe's good friend in, in all this, not only the, the pop culture has done its share to keep him alive. Mm -hmm. you know, starting in the 1930s with the Universal films with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, like the Black right. Raven. Right. And then in the 60s, the Vincent Price films for Roger Corman. But right at today, no American author has the street cred 
that mm-hmm. Poe has. Mm-hmm. He's on the cover of the Beatles Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band album. He's not only on the cover, he's got the top central position. He is mm-hmm. name-checked in songs by John Lennon and Bob Dylan. He has been shown up as a character in episodes of The Simpsons and South Park. He has been parodied and redone all across the spectrum. He's mentioned in the Wednesday series, it seems, every episode he is in some way mentioned and referenced. It's it's not, nobody's got the street cred that, that, that Poe's got. And mm-hmm. He, so so this is the most amazing afterlife of any American writer. And yeah, because you know what? He, he's a poor guy has just had the worst breaks. Like he had a, a childhood love, you know, or, or a youthful love. And he got derailed from Amira, right? And ended up. I think before death reconnecting with her. Yeah, he was good. They were they they had an understanding. Uh, Mara Royster uh, and was his childhood sweetheart. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he went away to the University of Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, they they considered themselves engaged. He okay. promised to write. His her father was was dead set against the match. Yeah. So she, he intercepted her letters. She the, is. The letters that that uh, he sent to her. Mm-hmm. She thought he'd forgotten about her and broke his promise. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, with her father's urging, married another man. Poe goes back. Fine. She is betrothed to another man. You know, and she thinks he didn't write. He well, he was writing uh, regularly, and the father was intercepting and destroying the letters. So he, uh, you know, this is this this is one of the. But this is a He's guy so who loses loved women in his life all the way through. This is right from the start because his own, his mother dies, who is a great actress, mm-hmm. uh, Liza Poe. Uh, she dies before he's three years old mm-hmm. and he's at the, he's at the deathbed and he's taken in by the, the Allens, which is where the Allen part of the Edgar Allan Poe comes from of Richmond. Mm-hmm. He's never adopted. So he's always made to feel like not truly accepted, mm-hmm. but he does love his foster mother. She dies. Uh, he, he sort of be idolizes the mother of one of his best friends. And she seems to be somebody who really understands him. She dies. Mm. You know? And then his own wife, Virginia, dies um, in, uh, of tuberculosis uh, in early at the age of 20, at the same age that his mother died mm-hmm. in her early 20s. So he keeps lo- he loses women. You know, you see right. in tow the theme of, 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 idealized young women dying young. Those are in a lot of his stories and a lot of his poems. It's yeah, it said that he was very much at peace in his life with his sisters. Um, he's he's very much at peace with, with when, you know, this is kind of like the, you, there's no way to make this sound good today because this you say this out, you might as well say it out loud, but it's going to sound icky. Right. <laughs> I like yeah. that. We'll go with Icky. <laughs> Poe marries his first cousin who's 13 years old. Right. And that's Virginia. Right. You know? Now, number one, child brides were not out of the ordinary back then. Back then. No. Right. And marrying your first cousin was not that. No. <laughs> you know, even among wealthy yeah. Virginia aristocracy, that was not that. Well, that's, that's, it's, yeah, exactly. Today, you say it out loud and people think, of, yeah. you know, but of he course. did marry, but by all accounts, it's 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 a very happy household, yes. and because with 
Virginia comes Virginia's mother. In other words, Poe's aunt, who now becomes his mother-in-law. Right. She adores Poe. She adores, she approves the match. She adores them. Right. And they are very, the three of them are a very happy household. It is here that Poe finally finds this, um, this sense of being truly accepted and loved. Right. And when Virginia dies, uh, very young, that really begins the spiral. That really begins the death spiral for Poe. He's sort of out of control for the last couple of years of his life. Mm. And he's really casting about. He courts several women in the last two years. Mm -hmm. And you can see he's kind of desperately trying to replace Virginia in some way mm. and have that household back that supports him. He needs that. He needs that emotional base because he he he, he loses people so constantly throughout his mm -hmm. life. So, yeah. yeah. Right. So it is a very sad life in a lot of ways. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it is marked by loss. Uh, right. No question about that. Well, right to the end. Mm -hmm. his own boss before he has a chance set at happiness. That's right. So, I mean, at the last year, it looks like a lot of things are starting to fall into place the last year. Mm -hmm. He's returned to poetry. There's this kind of triumphant return to poetry at the end. And he writes some of his greatest poems in that mm -hmm. last phase, the bells and Annabelle Lee. Yes. Those are all written in the last phase of his, of his career. Yes. Um, he looks like he's got an understanding and he's, he's going to marry Elmira. It looks like uh, he's going to get the dream of his life of g being able to edit his own magazine, which is one of his great dreams. And yes. he looks like he's got the backing of that. So there's a lot of reason for optimism right now. And just at that moment where it looks like things are starting to fall into place, that's when the rug gets pulled out from under him. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and he's gone. He, he's, 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 he's gone in a matter of days. Yes. Which is, again, yeah, which is interesting. So I think a lot of it ties into where did he disappear for six days and comes back and they see him and he's sort of, you know, a little bit on the delirious side and sort of raging a little bit and obviously in a lot of pain. Do you think, I mean, I think poison. <laughs> I always go to the whole, oh, okay. Maybe he just kind of got into something he shouldn't have. <laughs> You know, I, I wrong people. I, you know, the, the the one of the main theories to explain the missing days is that Poe got cooped, and mm -hmm. cooping was a Baltimore was a rough town, uh, right? By by um, even by nineteenth uh, century uh, Eastern Seaboard standards, it was a pretty rough town. Any 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 mm -hmm. port city would have had a rough section, of course. Uh, would have had a harbor Still section. Do. Would have had a very tough tough section. Sure. So, but Baltimore, even by those days, had had a had a magnificently bad reputation. There, the Baltimore's nickname back then was Mob Town. Jeez. Because they would riot at the drop of a hat. Right. Uh, and they took their rioting very seriously. When they rioted, they would, uh, you know, they would drive the, the the mayor and the sheriff out of town, and they would have to bring in the militia and the army to restore order. It would take days. Wow. They would burn down the houses of leading citizens. Mm -hmm. They rioted regularly in Baltimore. So, and so <laughs> Poe leaves Richmond. He heads for Baltimore. If he was sick when he got to Baltimore and he got, well, an election was going on in Baltimore at the time. And the <laughs> rival political parties used to do this thing called cooping. And what they would do is they would kidnap people off the streets. And then they would make them vote 
in different wards, be re repeat voters in different wards. Mm -hmm. And in between, they would keep them captive in pens, which or coops like chicken, whether they go like a chicken coop or a pen. Mm -hmm. And that so it became known as cooping. Mm -hmm. So one of the theories is that Poe ends up in Baltimore and he gets cooped. And one of the things they would do would they you they would change your clothes. So they keep you from being recognized as you went from polling place to polling place. Right. And he was found in clothes that were not his own, ill-fitting clothes that were not his own. Okay, so that might make sense. It's a very Baltimore explanation, and it's a very good explanation to sort of suggest at least part of the missing time mm -hmm. of where he was. And if he was kept, if he was a sick man at this point, and he was kept in, you know, a cold, barren place, um... It would, it would have been seriously undermining his health. Right. It would have been seriously, you know, a case of undermining his health. But there is a murder theory. You know, there is a theory mm -hmm. that the, the Roysters uh, did not uh, approve of, of Poe as a match mm -hmm. and that her brothers followed him and uh, beat him to an inch of his life and that uh, this led to his death. I don't buy that one for a second. There's no mm -hmm. proof. There's no evidence of that. And right. Poe was potty was examined when he was taken to the hospital. If he had been beaten, there would have been obvious bruises and such. Yes, and there was none. So, right. I, I, but I mean, to be cooped, would would there be evidence? I mean, you go there to disappear, right? And no, go well. No evidence has ever, you know, nobody right. that like he had been cooped with somebody who came forward right. and said, "Yeah, I was cooped with him. I was kept in a no, no, no." It was nothing like that. It's a hmm. theory. It's a theory. Right. And we have no evidence that that supports it other than the fact that there was an election going on the day Poe was discovered insensible on the streets of Baltimore. Hmm. It fits. Right. It, but it does. But it fits. And there's no proof. So. You know. Right. Right. And the, the other problem with how Poe died is, as a forensic pathologist told me, who examined the case for me, Poe died under what is called uh, non-specific symptoms. Now, non-specific symptoms are symptoms that can be caused by any number of possible causes. Mm -hmm. Poe was delirious. He was feverish. His nervous system was shot. He was out of his, his skull some uh, part of the time. Now, mm -hmm. that can be caused by a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be caused by encephalitis. It can be caused by what they call brain fever back then, or mm -hmm. what we now know to be inflammation of the membrane. Uh, it can be caused by rabies. It can be caused by uh, all sorts of things. Right. It's a very com Those are very common causes, uh, symptoms. So you can bend a theory around the symptoms. You can bend your theory. You could say, well, I think it was a brain tumor. Okay, that works. You know, right. well, I think it was rabies. Okay, that works. Um, right. I discount a lot of of the established theories because of uh, uh, of probability and evidence. Mm. Like rabies became a very popular theory, mm. but it, the record's pretty clear that Poe took liquids. He was in 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 the hospital in Baltimore for a few days, and it's pretty clear he took liquids. And if you can swallow liquids, it ain't rabies. Because you right. become you you uh, you know hydrophobic if you if you have rabies mm -hmm. and the very idea of swallowing water will make you foam at the mouth. Right. So um, so I don't think it was rabies. If he took one sip of water, it wasn't rabies, and I think he did. 
So I, you know, I discount murder. I discount rabies, you know, right. Um, For a while, one theory was illuminating gas because the gas that they used in the, uh, the lamps of the time was giving off fumes and that the illuminating gas that he was always writing, he was always cunched over. But mm-hmm. what that doesn't take, that's sort of plays to the stereotype of Poe, that he's always mm-hmm. at the desk. Poe got out a lot. He walked everywhere. He was not wealthy enough to own a horse or carriage, so he mm-hmm. walked everywhere. He got a lot of exercise most mm-hmm. of his life, and he wasn't cooped up most of his life. And guess what? One of the few things we can test is hair. And we do have samples of Poe's hair. There was a custom when somebody died that you would yes. take snips of, of hair. So we have a lot of actual snips of Poe's hair, and some of that has been tested. And what it has shown is that his levels of illuminating gas are way below lethal levels, way below anything that could have caused him. So we sort of say, well, we don't think it was illuminating gas. Right. Uh, so did you find anything in, in the samples that could give you a hint aside from what it's not? No, as a matter of fact, what we a lot of what we discovered from the hair is actually good. We found out that his diet was good, that he actually had a very good diet, a lot of fresh seafood, a lot of vegetables, a lot of, you know, uh, he, he actually seemed to have had a very good diet. Right. And that's something we owe you. The, the, the myth of Poe is that, you know, the family lived on bread and molasses for months at a time. And that seems to have been mm-hmm. nonsense. Right. So we actually found out good things about his levels of 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 things that would have killed him. There's nothing in the hair samples that that show anything that that mm-hmm. that would have been a, a good cause of, of death. Right. So what, <laughs> dare I ask, would you just want to save it for, go out and buy the book? I don't want to ruin uh, the book for anybody who is, you know, yeah, I, I, I do have a, a theory and I do think it's a good one. Okay. And I do think that it's the, you know, I treated all of the various causes, like I was a detective on the case and all of the possible causes were suspects. Okay. So what I can say <laughs> was, if this were a murder investigation, which suspect would, would you keep having back in the room? Which is the one we'd keep drawing back into the room? Which one has the most means and opportunity? Right. Which one is our primary person of interest here? Right. And then who are our main accomplices? That's kind of where the book leads. The book leads to that theory. Right. And again, I don't want to, because I, no, of it, course it's not. kind of the end. It's the Defeats the purpose. It's a, yeah, the so bang. I, I don't want to say what it is. You know, it right. has, is kind of out there. But I, I, for a lot of people who want to read the book, it, it is kind of getting to the end, you know. Right, right. End. So, uh, but but I, but again, I, I don't insist. Because I basically say, I think this is the best theory. As to right. How he died. right. But I, I, but I can't prove it. You know, I'd love to be able to say I can prove this, but mm-hmm. I and I don't again. And and I'm I I take that back. I I I don't want to say I, I I would love to be able to prove it because I don't think I do love would love to be able to prove it. I think I I want this to remain a mystery. You want it to stay a mystery? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, do. I think it's it's one of the it, it is one of the enduring things that keep him alive. Ironically, his death is one of the things that perpetuates his memory in his life. Right. And so, you know, well, we love our legends. We love our mysteries. We love our legends. And, and I agree with you. I I think if you solve the riddle, you solve the mystery, 
then all of a sudden, it, he, you know, he just sort of slips away. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's just one more death. It's just one more. Oh, yeah. okay. So, so I, I'm again, I, I like the idea mm -hmm. that this is, you know, the, 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 the title, A Mystery of Mysteries, comes from one of his poems, Spirits of the Dead. Right. It's not one of his well-known poems, but I love it. And, you mm -hmm. know, we, my wife and I perform it. Sarah is a wonderful actress. Very and nice. we perform. It's the last thing we do in every post show we do. And it's mm -hmm. become one of her favorite poems. She always says, you can have this read at my funeral. I love this poem so much. Beautiful. But the last stanza of the poem is, the breeze, the breath of God is still, and the mist upon the hill, shadowy, shadowy yet unbroken is a symbol and a token how it hangs upon the trees a mystery of mysteries and that's where the title comes from so right. the mystery of mysteries right and, uh, but I, I i but again i i am i'm much more interested in in rescuing poe as a writer see i i'm this mm -hmm. is very much a this is not an academics book yes this is not a you know kind of a scholarly book mm -hmm. Um, this is a uh, this is a popular biography. It is meant right. to be read, and it is meant to be enjoyed. Mm -hmm. and it is a writer's biography of a writer, right? And I don't, I can't pretend to be a kind of writer I'm not. I can't sort of right. you know, pretend to be an academic. There, the, this is not the big definitive academic biography of Edgar Allan Poe. There are better people for that. Right, and they're working on it. Their people are working on that kind of a book right now, hmm. and it's going to be an important contribution to post studies when that gets published. This book is very much meant to be a popular biography, and, mm -hmm. um, and my style of writing is um, it's very conversational, uh, right. you know, and, and it's very accessible. I, I mm. try, try to, you know, uh. Mark Twain once said that the books of the great geniuses are wine, and in comparison, mine are only water, but everybody drinks water. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of my approach, too. Um, and I took a chance with this book. I took two chances with this book. Mm -hmm. um, yes. One was that I, I have a dual timeline. You know, mm -hmm. the, the book has a, the book goes between two different chapters. One chapter will be take you through the last few months of his life. Mm -hmm. And then they alternate with chapters looking back at the bigger sections of his life until the two timelines meet at the mm -hmm. end. And you get my theory as to how he died. Right. So I, I, I came up with a technique which was different than the average biography, which basically goes A to Z, birth to death. Mm -hmm. so Poe was not a... Uh, he didn't play it safe, so you know I don't think a biography of him should not play it safe. Right. And the other thing I did was I did interviews, and he's like, "Well, how do you do interviews for somebody who died in 1849? There's there's nobody alive who knew Edgar Allan Poe. There's mm -hmm. nobody alive who knew anybody who knew Edgar Allan Poe. Mm -hmm. So I did interviews with all the leading Poe scholars and biographers. I interviewed forensic pathologists and forensic anthrop anthropologists, mm -hmm. medical historians, um, especially. Right. It lends, you know, it lends to your theories of credibility. I think it's. It's it also the way, it, it, again, it's, again, I can't pretend to be another writer. I was a journalist for 43 yeah. years. And that's yeah. how a journalist operates. Like a journalist or a documentarian does interviews. Yes. You know, and to me as a detective on the case, these were my witnesses. 
These were the mm. people I went to and said, what do you think? And not the least of which of the people I went to were horror writers, people who, and horror directors, people mm -hmm. like Stephen King and, and Anne Rice mm -hmm. and, and actors like Vincent Price. Yes. And uh, directors like Wes Craven. Yes. Who understood what it takes to do this and do this at a high level. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that led me to sort of believe that Poe wasn't the person we made of him. Right. And that is that, one thing I found in common with all these people, uh, Stephen King, Anne Rice, Ray Bradbury, Wes Craven, mm. all of them had great senses of humor. They were very funny people. Mm -hmm. And when I remarked to Stephen King about this, he said, well, of course, you know, if you did not have a sense of humor and you did this, you'd go crazy. You need a sense that. of humor to ground you if you're going to explore territory this dark. Yes, I could see that completely. And humor and horror are twins. They are flip sides of the same coin. You know, they're the two metaphoric devices we use to approach things we don't like to think about. We don't mm -hmm. like to talk. They allow us to address really <clears throat> difficult subjects. Mm -hmm. And they're easily dismissed by critics, too. They're two of the hardest forms to write and to be true masters of. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that all these people had great senses of humor. And Stephen King, he, he said, you know, horror writing is cathartic. We put it down on paper, and then we give it to you. It's your problem now. We're done with it. <laughs> you know? Right. And um, and then I thought, no, wait a minute. If Poe was so good at this, then doesn't it sort of logically follow that he had a sense of humor? And it turns out he did. He was very funny, very witty, and he wrote a lot of satire, hoaxes, humorous pieces. We just don't read those pieces today. Right. But even some of the horror stories are richly funny. Casca right. Amadiato has some dynamite laugh lines in it. Right. It's a terrible story. It's a grisly story. Right. <laughs> but it, it's also very funny. Right. So one of the things you literally learned is that we, we don't think of Edgar Allan Poe as a comedy writer. No. But he was. He actually did write as much humor as he did horror. So And he did have a sense of humor. So the one thing we deny him is the one thing he must have had. Right. He had to have had a sense of humor to have done this this well. Mm -hmm. He did. Right. So right. That's one of the things I wanted to do. So I took two 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 chances with this, mm -hmm. you know, which is basically as a writer, that's kind of like going off the high diving board, <laughs> just hoping there's it's water. It's a chance. It's yeah, a chance. Hoping there's water when you get down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so if, if anybody doesn't like this book because of, you know, the structure, I, I, I can't blame them up. Yeah, okay, you know, it's not your book because I did write it this way and I made every intention of writing it this way. Right. You know, but I can't pretend to be a different kind of writer. No, no. Well, um, I mean, I think I like your approach. I well, like the, you. yeah, I you're, so. you're welcome. You know? I, I think we concentrate so much on the macabre side of everything that we sometimes forget that these were real people. They had, you know, real lives. They had ups, they had downs, um, sad stories, happy stories, diversity. And I think when people delve into it, they, because we love our mysteries, our legends, and we love, you know, the whole age that surrounded them, like you say, you know, Bram Stoker was, was, was a big one. Mary Shelley, I mean, we don't look at the fact that these people wrote many other things. I mean, I know Dacre, 
Stoker. And we've, we've, yeah, we've talked a few times and he's just like, he wrote so much other stuff yeah. and he goes, and the one thing that, that he's remembered for is of course, you know, Dracula. Mm -hmm. And you look at Poe, it's the same idea. It's the Raven. It's Annabelle Lee is like, there's so many, which leads me to this, this question. Um, you're saying like, th there's no descendants. Is there like, who got all the literary stuff? I know you got paid for it and went out to all of these different. I think I read that the Raven got what fifteen dollars and then just, something like that. Yeah, I have to, yeah. look at, I have to read my own book to remember how much. Yeah, <laughs> no, but but how? Um, where did it all end up? It all ended up, you know, in the public domain. It all ended up, uh, which is where it is today. Um, all the writing ended up in archives. Finally, people started collecting it. <clears throat> so the original manuscripts ended up in archives across the country, places like the University of Virginia or the Poe Museum in Richmond or Brown yeah. University. Um, but, you know, I think you, you hit on something there when you were talking about, you know, the uh, this kind of obsession with the mm -hmm. macabre aspect of somebody's career. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the things with Poe that has perpetuated it. I think people don't really want to hear that he wasn't that guy. And right. I think it's because they're afraid we're going to lose the fun Poe. Right. You know? And it's sort of like, well, you know, what I'm trying to say is, you know, Poe didn't write those stories because he was obsessively that macabre guy. Right. He wrote those. One of the reasons he was so good in writing those stories was because he was interested in everything. All of that fed this genius with the horror stories it yes. wasn't because that's the only thing he was interested in. And that's the only thing he wrote. But I do think that people are a little afraid of losing the fun Poe and, 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 and I'm as guilty of it as anybody. Look, the guy's an icon. Yeah. Do, do I have a Poe action figure on my head? Yes, I do. You know, I love do it. I have Poe t-shirts and Poe coffee mugs? Yes, I do. You know, <laughs> I, I and and my wife and I we every time we do the when Sarah and I do our our, our show we always tell people uh, Edgar Allan Poe did enough to fill seventeen volumes he was this he was that he was this and but tonight we're doing the Raven you know we're right. just like everybody else you know right. but I, I think the example of this is if you look at the in like nineteen sixty the mm -hmm. beginning of that remarkable decade when everything. The, the whole world got turned inside out and upside down and everybody questioned their place. And we came out of the conformity of the fifties mm -hmm. and everybody sort of was busting loose. And it was a time of liberation movements and people sort of being able to um, be their own person and be their own thing. It's an amazing decade. It mm -hmm. really is. Right. And uh, if you look at the beginning of that decade, the two best known American writers are clearly Mark Twain and Edgar Allan Poe. Yes. They're the two instantly recognized. And again, like right. I said before, writers aren't recognized in this. But right. if you showed people a picture of Mark Twain or Edgar Allan Poe, they they, they know who they are just by looking at them. Were, right. Yes. And you know, both of their reputations in 1960 were based on stereotype. Mm -hmm. Twain, it was sort of the grandfatherly man of letters, the uh the boys author, the author of children's classics, the, mm -hmm. the witty guy you know, the observer of American, uh, the American scene, mm -hmm. sort of a genial grandfatherly image. Yes. It was a, an image jealously guarded by his one surviving daughter, Clara, who suppressed a lot of his writings because she was sure, just certain, that they would destroy his reputation if wow. they were out. 
Wow. So Clara dies, you know, in the early 60s, and the suppressed writings start to come out. Mm -hmm. And they do the exact opposite of what Clara feared. They mm -hmm. enlarged our view of Mark Twain. And right. all of a sudden, we understood that Mark Twain was a very serious social critic. Right. He had a lot to tell us about politics and religion and what he called the damned human race. Twain gets bigger and bigger. But we don't lose the fun Twain because of that. Right. Now, Poe comes out of the 60s, the same guy he that he went into the 60s. He's the, you know, we right. still love him as the as the the the, the, the master of horror and mystery. Mm. And we still love him at the end of the 60s, so the same thing, but we haven't changed our perception of him that much. And it's kind of still true today. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons is people are a little afraid of losing the fun Poe. And it's like, well, you can't lose him. He was just so darn good at that stuff. Right. You're, we're not going to lose that Poe by just acknowledging he was a much bigger, greater artist than yes. just those few stories we know him for. Right. So, you know, and 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 that and and by acknowledging that that bigger, greater writer, you'll better understand the person who wrote those stories and why he was so good at writing those. Mm -hmm. You know, Vincent Price once said that the the person who limits his interests limits their lives. That's true. Very good. Now, he wasn't talking about Edgar Allan Poe, but he might right. as well have been because Poe was a guy who was interested in everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy was interested in rocks and ancient languages and geography mm -hmm. and, 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 and expeditions. And I could totally relate to him he wrote one, <laughs> for those reasons. He wrote one piece that, that, that people think uh, foreshadows modern physics. He's that, that, that's how much his, his brain worked, you know, in all mm -hmm. of these different ways. Yes. So he is, you know, uh, one FBI agent that I interviewed for the book thinks Poe not only created the modern mystery story, he creates in some ways the, the father of modern forensics mm. because he creates the idea of profiling. Right. Uh, if you look in his book of, 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 uh, of how you figure out something mm. and that's an amazing thing to, to say, you know, that this guy mm. did so, Poe. So he was a pioneer Poe. in many ways. But, you know, all of this feeds his his skill as a horror writer. Yes. You know, it doesn't detract from it. Mm -hmm. It shows you why he was so good at it. Yes. And that's why, you know, that's another reason I wrote the book. Well, I, I also think that there were a lot of, um, and, and I just see uh, Cece's comment here that I'll put up. Uh, hello. <laughs> In Lovecraft's essays, poems, and letters, Poe is mentioned multiple times. Lovecraft wrote, when I wrote stories, Edgar Allan Poe is my model. And, but Poe was my god of fiction. So I'm sure he he paved the way or was an inspiration for many writers. And Lovecraft, you know, credits Poe with being, you know, bringing the horror story into the modern age. Yeah, you know, Lovecraft says, you know, Poe. Po uh, yeah, I love Lovecraft. <laughs> yes, and, so, and, and, I, and I agree with that. Now, yes. one of Poe, one of Lovecraft's uh, pen pals, uh, as a young man, was Robert Bloch, the author of Psycho. Right. <laughs> and Block, you know, he's a great. He was a, turned into a great horror writer. Block, you know, everybody knows him just as Psycho, but but Block yeah. was just an amazing writer. Yes. And uh, and and I interviewed uh, Robert Block 
as well about Edgar Allan Poe. Right. And so here's a guy who knew Lovecraft, or was at least, you know, pen pals with Lovecraft. The liaison. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, love, so it goes sort of goes back to Poe and, and blocked, right. idolized uh, Poe too. Ray Bradbury also had a lot of great things to say about Poe as a horror writer. Mm -hmm. And Bradbury said Edgar Allan Poe took the horror story and he made literature out of it. It's not far wrong. Now, Mary Shelley right. was there first and she gets a lot of the credit. I know she should you know? get a lot of credit. Yeah, but or, but 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 Bradbury's not far wrong. Yes. In, in sort of saying that. Yes. Um, and the odd thing is that Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, said pretty much the same thing about Poe as a mystery writer. Right, right. Arthur Conan Doyle arrives in America for a tour in the 1890s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're talking, you know, 40 years after Poe's death. Mm -hmm. yes. And, uh, but he's all, he's acclaimed as the, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. And he has a press conference and there are a bunch of American reporters in the room and they think they're going to get him, you know, they think they're going to, so they, so one of the reporters says, you know, isn't it true that uh, your Sherlock Holmes is just a, a ripoff of Ooh. Edgar Allan Poe's C. Auguste Dupin, his detective who appears in The Murders in the Room Morgue and The Purloined yes. Letter? Yes, yes. And Doyle shocks them all by saying, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, 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 basically, he said, you know, we all got it from Poe. You know, everybody who writes yeah. about kind of erudite super sleuth who can enter a room and see what nobody else sees that's that is Poe, mm -hmm. Poe's invention, and yes, we're all living off of Poe. On the hundredth anniversary of Poe's birth, in 1909, Doyle addresses an English gathering of mystery writers, and he delivers a tribute to Poe. And he says, "Where was the mystery story before Edgar Allan Poe breathed life into it?" So what Conan Doyle yeah. is saying about Poe and mystery, yeah. Bradbury and Lovecraft are saying pretty much the same thing about horror. Right. You know, that he's breathing life into these two forms. You know? Yes. And the mystery writers got there first because the mystery writers of America's annual award is the Edgar Award. You know? Right. It, it probably, the, uh, not, not to, to, to denigrate anybody, the, the horror writers, when they started there, they, they called it the Stoker Award. But I think that's because Poe is already taken. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love Bram Stoker, but I, I do. I know. I, I, I know. I, I, I sort of love the whole, you know, like I did. I love Mary Shelley. You know, I love Bram, Bram Stoker. I loved Edgar Allan Poe. I love Lovecraft. But, you know, but, but I go back to, I, I don't know, I always say, you know, I'm an old soul, but I loved I, my, some of my fondest memories were staying up in my, you know, on a Friday night at midnight once a month waiting for the whole night to be just the old black and white movies. This was in the seventies. And my father would say, okay, I'll stay up with you. Figuring I needed, you know, to have my dad with me while I'm watching these horror movies. Meanwhile, dad falls asleep and I'm still like wide eyed and just like this, you know, I love it. And I still enjoy it, them. It's a wonderful age. I mean, it's it one is, of the great yeah. things, you know, about, about Poe too, is that, Poe has kind of become our one and only renewable literary resource. Right. Because almost every other writer has dropped out of curriculum and, and the public schools and even the private school levels. Mm. You know, they don't teach, even Mark Twain, they don't teach much anymore. In, 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 he's, he's dropped out. That's sad. 
Well, it is very sad, but Poe at least stays there. And he's in, in the first time almost everybody gets Poe is the seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And that's a great age to get Poe for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, because let's face it, seventh grade for most kids, reading is a bloody chore. Who likes to read in the seventh grade? Now, there's always the one or two kids. You may have been that one kid who loved to read in the seventh grade. Oh, yeah. I, I used to read like, a, a, I don't know, a book every couple of days. But you were the uh, exception. I was a weirdo. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was reading. Right. You, you know, you're surrounded by a whole class of people like you. you know. <laughs> yeah. So the seventh grade, I mean, you know, you, 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 oh, no, not another reading assignment. No. Oh, and then... <laughs> And then all of a sudden, seventh grade English class, they give you the telltale heart. And they give mm-hmm. you Edgar Allan Poe. And all of a sudden, reading has come from being a bloody chore to being a bloody joy. Oh, yes. And you get Edgar Allan Poe. And what is Poe doing? Poe is dismembering corpses. He's putting people <laughs> in torture chambers. All the weird grade seveners going, yeah. Walling <laughs> them up alive in catacombs. And the, yeah. the, the great thing, the amazing thing about all this is that nobody lifts an eyebrow. Nobody <laughs> complains about this. Can oh, you imagine yeah. giving students these very same stories written by contemporary authors? Mm. You would have an outcry, you know, <laughs> from one of our kids. You're giving them what? Yes. And yet nobody complains about Poe. And I think one of the reasons is that all of the parents and the grandparents got Poe at the same age. Right. And they love and approve of Poe. Right. So they don't raise an objection when their seventh grader gets Poe. It's like when my father was in high school during the depression, during the 1930s, (laughs) he got Poe. He loved Poe. You know, he could remember all the stories. And that's the thing. After every Poe talk I give, somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, you know, Oh, you know, uh, I still remember reading The Telltale Heart for the first time. I still remember, you know, The Black Cat. Or, or I had to, recite, uh, to to memorize the first four stanzas of The Raven, and then they do it for you, you know. And I never yeah. stopped because it, it's very important to them. Yes. And you realize, what other author can you do this with? What other author, not only could you recognize what he looked like, mm-hmm. recognize his picture, but then also know and have a connection to some of his writing, whether mm-hmm. it's the Raven or the Telltale Heart or whatever it is, mm-hmm. that's a that is real recognition. That if for a writer, that is su- supreme it, recognition. Isn't it normal though? Upon death, how many how many writers become more famous <laughs> just because of what they're writing? They to slip out. I mean, they do. They so miss some it, you do, know. But then, but then they sort of, you yeah. know, after a while, you know, there's there's they phase not. Phase out. I mean. It's yeah. not like, you know, the schools are even teaching Hemingway and, and Faulkner at this point. Right, right. You know, but, but Poe's still there. And Poe's not only there in the seventh grade. You keep getting him. You get him in the eighth, ninth, yes. all the way through high school. Then if you take literature and college, yes. you know, you're going to get him again. Yes. So, you know, you got Poe in school. I got Poe in school. All God's yeah. villains got Poe. You that's know? true. <laughs> and that's know. the amazing thing is like, so Poe gets, you know, curriculum and the pop culture. Mm-hmm. That's a very formidable one-two punch. That is an amazing mm-hmm. one that's, that keeps him going and keeps. And him you alive. really get those who you know, like, like the first editions. Just you know, saying. I was in <laughs> just I mean, just today. Just today, I had I, I was I was in a, a, a hospital in Akron, Ohio. Yes. 
you know, not for me, but, you know, yeah. but I, I, I was in the, in the emergency room. I was walking through the emergency room and a doctor about 50 years old, I would say, comes up to now. I have this kind of uh, uh, vest that I wear. It's a sort of a uh, sportsman's vest, but I love right. it because it's got pockets. I'm not a sportsman. Yeah. Don't push, don't <laughs> but I love pockets. All writers love to have pockets. Have right. Put, you know, pens and keys and notebooks mm. and things. And, you know, people have given me pins with writers on them, you know, uh, pictures of writers. So I have a Mary Shelley <clears throat> and a Bram Stoker and, you know, uh, mm. and Anton Chekhov and all these great Robert Louis Stevenson. I've got all I've got. It's got to be, you know, 13, 14 pins. Mm. So the doctor looks, looks at me. I'm, I'm obviously trying to get somewhere. He's talking. He says, what's with all the pens? You know. And I has well, I, I'm a writer. They're writers. Oh, and then, and he he won't let me go. I mean, I, I think you know, we're in an emergency room. Don't you have somewhere <laughs> to? Be? But um, the, the, he looks them all over and he says, "Well, I recognize Edgar Allan Poe. It's the I only one he got." Now he did. I, so I said, "Well, how about him?" He then, "Oh, Mark Twain." And he, so he did get Twain. You know, I, I gave him points. For like, that. But again, the two, you know, the two yeah. most known for two totally different ends of the spectrum. I think is it's. Black and white. We always pictured Mark Twain in a white suit. We always pictured Edgar <laughs> Allan Poe in a black suit. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Both ends of the spectrum, but both like literary well, giants. There was a, a, critic, a writer named B.S. Pritchett who uh, famously said that all of American literature comes from those two 19th century scarecrows, Edgar Allan Poe and Mark Twain. <laughs> and um, that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but, <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's wow. not, but it's not far wrong either. There is right. there is an argument to be made right. that between the two of them, they really are the one-two punch of American literature uh, in, in, the, right. in the 19th century. Right. The 19th century. Well, I mean, you have so many countries have their, you know, their authors, and we have, you know, Poe and Twain and... Uh, I think it's great. We we need somebody too, darn it. <laughs> you know? And darn, we pack a punch <laughs> when you think about it. You know? Well, you know, in some ways, you know, as a literary critic, and this yeah. is sometimes where like, Poe gets overlooked, hmm. Poe is kind of out there as a literary critic calling for an American voice. Mm -hmm. So he understands that, you know, in the 1830s, American literature is sort of under the, the the thumb of English literature. Yes. And Poe understood that, you know, American literature would never really grow up until we escape the thrall of Europe in general and England in particular. Right. You know, Poe believed we should not bow down on a knee to English literature. And we should create, he's in some ways like our John the Baptist out there, you know, right. he's a critic. He's calling for you know, and Twain's going to be the one who answers the call. Twain's going to be the one who provides the first a truly American voice mm -hmm. and writes in the vernacular. Actually has a, you know, a teenage boy be mm -hmm. the narrator of a book speaking in vernacular. Um, right. So in some ways, Twain's the guy who is the fulfillment of what Poe is calling for. Right. So, so you know it's easy sort of dismiss Poe as a critic today because, mm -hmm. you know, nobody reads the criticism, but he's a really important American critic. Right. 
Right. He's, I think he's he's important on a whole lot of levels. And I'm sure you're going to have a lot of people tonight. Maybe, like I would say, it is the season, but it's always Poe season. It is. Old. That's exactly right. There's never a wrong season for Poe. That's exactly, exactly right. Exactly. And I, I, I'm sure a lot of people are going to go and revisit that. And for those, I mean, who haven't, sh shame on you. Not really, but yes. <laughs> so he'll get out there and start with, I'm going to put this up right now once again, and maybe you could tell us um, where to find your book. Well, it's it's certainly available on Amazon, but it's also available in bookstores, any Barnes & Noble or, or BAM. Any quality bookstore near you should have it or be able to order it for you. So right. it, uh, yeah, this is from St. Martin's Press. So, uh, and they did a wonderful job. I love the cover. Beautiful cover. One of I love my it. Covers of, of any of my books. Yes. And, um, they actually designed three covers for this book. They sent mm -hmm. me three covers and said, which one do you like? And I said, well, there's only one choice. You know? <laughs> this is it. Right. And, 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 and um, an editor who looked at it said, you know, it breaks every design rule in the book and it works. Right. Perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And I said, yeah, and Poe broke all the rules. Right. You know? So Right. You know, I love I, it. So I, I I do like that. And I, and I break rules in, in, in how I you know went about writing the book. So I thought it was the one who fit that fit the book the, the best too. You know, because yeah, I it's like, a great cover. I, yeah. I love I love it. It's just you know, especially with the raven and there he is in silhouette. I just love it. Yeah, and I you know the thing I want to say, you know, like how we love the fun Poe. Mm -hmm. Poe loved the fun Poe. Right. You know, when when the Raven hits in 1845, Poe finally gets this kind of uh, this taste of celebrity that had been denied to him for 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 so long. Right. And they he actually now becomes known as the Raven Man. And he loves right. reciting it. He was a very good reader. He was very dramatic. He got his mother's uh, acting ability and his, uh, so mm -hmm. he, if he was going to read it you know, in a, in a salon, he'd go and he'd make sure all the candle, the lightings were just perfect and just right place. And he had this beautiful, uh, Tidewater Virginia accent. And mm -hmm. uh, so he would, he was in great demand to read the Raven. Uh, right. and he loved it and he loved the, 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 you know, he had this fame and he sort of courted, you know, his hero was Lord Byron. So mm -hmm. he loved to dress in black and have this, you know, kind of cut this romantic figure. And, yes. uh, he, you know, after the Raven hit, he'd go out and walk the streets of New York and the neighborhood kids would follow him and throw pebbles at his heels. You know, the Raven man, the Raven man. Wow. And, uh, and shout, you know, at, at him. And he'd wait and just until they got close enough and then he'd wheel around and he'd say, never more. And they'd all go running. <laughs> they loved it. He loved it. They loved it. So he played up to it, you know. Right. Like when he was right. living in his last home, which was a, a cottage in the Bronx, and the Bronx back then was was farmland. It was just all most of it was 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 unsettled. It was right. It, it was really the the Hicks. Right. Well, he had a, a little cottage there where he lived with his wife and uh, mother-in-law. And one day, a a friend came calling with his teenage daughter who mm -hmm. wanted to meet Poe. Right. <clears throat> so when they got to the um, the cottage, they they were invited inside, and the the girl was sort of looking around, and Poe knew what she he was she was looking for. Poe knew exactly, and, and there was a he said, "No, there's no raven here. I don't I don't keep a raven." 
And he's looking, there's a picture of a, of a woman on the, the, the sitting room of the par the, the, for the parlor of the uh, cottage. And he, sa he says, that's not the lost Lenore, you know. <laughs> so he right. knows what his image is. He, he's, he, yes. he knows, and he doesn't mind having fun with it himself. Right, know? right. You know? Hey, got to roll with it, you know. That's the way it goes. Yep. But we're already at, at the top of the hour. My gosh, it just flew by just amazing i have to thank you so much for joining me this evening i am i love it grandma poe of course so this for me was a real treat and i could listen to you talk for hours about it i really could so thank you and i i god i wish you well on whatever you decide to write next <laughs> so it's gonna it'll be, be something it'll be something and, it'll and be you know, something. we're talking about like two or three different things right now I know, and and you know like what? Finalists that we're kind of trying to think of what we're going to pitch, and I and I keep saying it's not going to be any one of the three. You watch, you, you watch. watch. No, that comes out of left field. You're going to be led where you have to, but I I will contact you because I I think you know I'm perusing the website and I would love to have you back on again sure. to talk about something else. I think it would be great. So I've I've done an entire book on Dracula, so you know that's a I'm down. Stoker. <laughs> I'm down. I actually own a first edition. One of my favorites. The first book I ever read. Yes. It's a good, it's a heck of a book. I mean, it is the difference between Bram Stoker and Edgar Allan Poe is that, you know, Poe's kind of whole body of work is, is very, Stoker yes. writes one book that's bigger than himself. He writes right. one book where he yes. really catches fire. And yes. I do like some of the, his short stories and even some of the other novels like Lair of the White Worm and, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I do like some of his other, but they don't come close to Dracula. No, but hardly no. anything does. And he just—I mean—he just catches fire with this, with this yes. book. And yes, it, it is an amazing book. Yes, uh, it absolutely has is. Ever come up with anything as metaphorically perfect as Dracula? I know it. It is everything about it to me was just ideal. And of course, you know, having visited. Uh, the homeland, <laughs> so to speak. It, you, you know, you, you definitely, you know, it's a work of fiction, but it's it's really interesting when you start seeing some of the locations and you realize he never stepped foot there. Well, and that amazing decision to 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 write mm -hmm. an epistle uh, approach to the novel mm -hmm. and yes. have this, it it reads like a record. You know, it's it's it, you know almost all horror and fantasy ideas sound silly when you say them out loud. <laughs> you just explain them to somebody. Right. It's always in the execution. You know, you, you say like, well, we're going to do this movie and it's going to, we're going to have a bunch of people stranded on an island and there are, we figured out how to clone dinosaurs. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. It's silly. I mean, it really sounds like, I know. No, it's Jurassic Park. It's going to be great. I you know. know. I, I know. <laughs> any idea when you, when you kind of boil it down to the basics kind of sounds, but the really good ones like Jurassic Park, Mm -hmm. make it feel like it's something that actually not only could happen, but is happening. Right. And Dracula, you read Dracula and it reads like a record. It reads like, you know, he's got this like almost verite style. That oh, he I know. With Dracula. And it's one of the great things because he's presenting an absurd uh, story uh, in, 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 mm -hmm. in basic. And yet you read this thing and it just like, this feels like it's actually it's happening. like butter. <laughs> And we will do that for another night. 
Great. So thank you so much. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I will you. be in touch. Thank, thank you. I, I, I really did enjoy it. And as you can see, I just need to overcome my shyness and uh, come out I of my shell. I'm, 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 I hope you had a great time. I had a blast. <laughs> I did. Thank you. Well, that's good because this is your show and that's what's important. It doesn't matter. Ah, what it's your show too. <laughs> well, I'm going to have a good time wherever I go. So you know, it doesn't matter what I think. You know, like I say, I always ask the host, if it works for you, it works for me. It worked. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. All right. Good night. Good night. Good night. Well, we have come to the end of another fantastic segment of the Outer Realm. Big thank you to Mark, the Witsiak. I really hope I didn't butcher that again. God, I'm terrible. Anyway, huge thank you to Folgers Coffee. Huge thank you to Justin Snicker, Dr. Snick, the Sonic Surgeon, Steve McGinnis. Uh, all photos tonight came courtesy of the poemuseum.com. So go check it out if you want to see more. And we've been putting Mark's stuff across the board. So check him out next week, guys. We welcome back Rebecca Pittman, who's going to be discussing the Lizzie Borden house and the famous Leap Mansion in Ireland, keeping up with Spooky Month. Thursday night, we welcome back Devara or Devara. God, I got to say that right. Thunderbeat is going to be discussing ancient Egypt in Sedona. You heard it right. There will be photos. So definitely join us. And for everybody in Canada, happy Thanksgiving this weekend. See you next week. Good night.